Hello, and welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist, with me, Josh Hamilton. Rory O'Donnell, the former Labour staffer and head of the 2019 Battle Bus, was my guest on today's show. I first met Rory when we were briefly working in the same restaurant together in Belfast while I was at Queen's University. And since then, he has gone on to work for Open Europe and then found himself working his way rapidly up the ranks of the Labour Party and into the offices of Jeremy Corbyn whilst he was leader of the opposition. For me, this was a really fascinating episode as it gave me a chance to get an inside look at life inside Corbyn's Labour and decipher just how much of the rumours and accusations about internal sabotage, anti-Semitism and the anti-Corbyn conspiracy in the media were based in truth and how much of it was just gutter journalism. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. So, here's Rory O'Donnell. Okay, so, Rory, thank you very much for doing this, man. It was, uh, it's an absolute pleasure. As I mentioned there, I've been, uh, I was curious about to get someone on who had some experience within the Labour Party during the Corbyn administration because the the amount of misinformation was just mind blowing and yeah like there's there's a couple of different things we'll go over but but yeah I I mean how did you even get involved when you when you when you how did you end up working for 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 the Labour Party and then and then in the you know the the leader of the opposition's office. Yeah, that, that's that's a question I get asked an awful lot. It's people look at me, particularly as a London, and go, "How did you end up here?" Um, it's it's all by chance, if I'm honest. Uh, so, I uh, had worked on the Remain campaign in Northern Ireland, and before that, I'd been living in London and been kind of knocking around labour circles in voluntary capacity. Um, and just as the Remain campaign was coming to an end, uh, a member, the former member of Parliament for Eating North, Stephen Pound phoned me up and said, listen, you want a job? I need a caseworker. And I was thinking, great. Uh, so this was July of 2016. So Corbyn's been in charge. Um, but this is just when uh, the challenge from Ansley Eagle and Owen Smith happens. Um, you've got an instance where 37 out of 40 of the party's political advisors resign along with their shadow cabinet members. Uh, in order to you know mount this, what people call a coup, uh, I think it's a bit disingenuous calling it a coup. It was a leadership challenge. Um, <laughs> as much as I didn't agree with it, and you was a good work, I think calling it a coup is a bit much. Um, so they were they had to fill gaps both within the shadow cabinet and within the advisors with anyone they could find. <laughs> so at the time, <laughs> I had an accent, um, and I, I would consider myself on the left wing of the Labour Party, uh, perhaps not the, the furthest left, but uh, definitely the left of the centre of the Labour Party, if that exists. Um, and so, yeah, they, they appointed a fellow called Dave Anderson to be the Shadow Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, and I was working as a caseworker for Steve Pound, who was the junior minister for Northern Ireland. So I, I just sort of fell into it, uh, and I helped out on an interim basis, and then... They said, listen, can you stay on because you seem to know what you're doing, which was, you know, I have to say a bit of a baptism of fire. You're talking about going into this job when the entire sort of infrastructure of the Labour Party has changed. So you've got no one knew what they were doing, not just me, which was made me feel a lot better at the time. But it also meant that we were sort of 
feeling our way around in the dark, um, which I, I, I think was noticeable. <laughs> but uh, you're, you've got it in terms of the context of what I was doing within my role, but you've got, you know, this is just in the run up to the collapses institutions in Northern Ireland, and it's in the middle of everything to do with Brexit. So it's a lot that's going on. Um, and uh, yeah, interesting time, but very, you know, very glad to do it. Being the Labour Party's advisor in Northern Ireland, that I always sort of aimed to be doing. I just didn't think it was going to happen when I was 23. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's been a strange couple of years. Uh, it's, I was just in London there uh, yesterday, uh, so Monday, Tuesday this week. I'm on Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, and it's uh, yeah, it's it's a different place, uh, and I have to say, Keir Starmer, I think, is doing a pretty good job. I was speaking to him yesterday. Um, it's a different style, and uh, you know, I, I think it has the capacity to do a lot, a lot of the things that the Corbyn project, as people call it, but the the ideas that were there, the ideas that were in both 2017 and 2019 manifestos, that they can be carried forward because. Irrespective of what people thought of Jeremy, I think I can say with relative confidence that the manifesto, particularly in 2017, when it was slightly more boiled down than it was in 2019, people liked it when they read it. It's only when they saw the label. Okay, now this is according to polls, and we can trust polls as much as you want. But um, you know, I, I think there was some stuff in there that's genuinely transformational in people's lives. Mm. No, that was always one of one of the things I, I was really like people. People would have criticized my personal belief that that's the program that they needed, that the Britain needed, um, or still needs, <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah. Um, and the criticisms often sort of focused on Corbyn himself, but uh, I'll be really, I'll be really curious as to whether the platform, the platform for me was the important thing. Like that was the manifesto, the, the ideas were the were the important thing and and I'll be curious to see whether uh Keir Starmer is going to take that forward and I want to get on to him later but um when you when you started um when you first came in you were saying it was a bit sort of chaotic and yeah. uh maybe to say the least that was definitely I definitely got that impression sort of watching it but I mean I th- we, we you know we sort of we're cursed with interesting times at the minute everything in the world seems to have happened in the last five years <laughs> yeah let, let's hope that slows down a bit yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem to be, but you know, fingers <laughs> crossed. Um, like one of the early criticisms that that people often gave of of um, you know Corbyn's Labour Party was that they were sort of very hostile to the press and that they were basically unwilling to play the game as such. And like, did, is that the impression that you got from inside the party? I, I don't know that we were unwilling to play the game because I, I think I think we did. You know, we did do the op eds. We did go on all the shows that you know all the broadcast was there a hostility yeah i do think there was was that justified probably um you have to remember that the media has had spent you know uh, the last five years attacking jeremy Corbyn for everything some of it justified i have to say you know there, there are things that they were right to attack on you have to expect that scrutiny when you're leader of the opposition um but the manner in which they were you know attacking jeremy and his personal past in a way that if you look at the moment, they're not doing with Boris Johnson. Um, you know, he's not had the same scrutiny despite being mayor of London, foreign secretary, uh, and now prime minister that Jeremy Corbyn had. Um, I, I, I think there was certainly a hostility there. I think it disappeared as time went on because you can't effectively operate any political operation 
if you're going to be at war with the press. There was this, there, there is a difference between the hostility to the press that came from the Labour Party as a movement under Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party as in its parliamentary and the top of the party activities. I think from the grassroots um, networks that built up following Jeremy's leadership campaign in 2015, I would say there was more of a hostility to the media from there than there was from the actual leadership. And that could be seen from some of the uh, uh, the new online platforms, such as you know Red Rover, the Canary and Novara Media, that were trying to establish a new sort of platform for you know, left-wing talk conversations and for that perspective. And that's great and it has its place, but it's not how you win an election by talking to yourself. Um, and, you know, for every for every article you could get in, you know, the Daily Mail or the, or the Sun, it was worth 100 articles you could get into the, you know, into the, the, the more left-leaning publications. And that, that's kind of where I think there, there was a bit of a mistake um, that we, and I think, the, there was a it was possibly down to the language that was used by the party but sometimes you have to speak the language of you have to moderate and transform your language into ways of putting across your argument that you wouldn't otherwise do in order to make it help it reach a different audience and the audience labor actually needed to reach was the working class and the in the midlands and the north that weren't reading the guardian you know, they, they weren't reading the New Statesman, and they're not going to be reading the Guardian or the New Statesman. Mm. And they were reading. Now, uh, I, I I would draw a line with the Sun, but the, you know, they, they read the, the Mail and they read the Express, and not traditionally Labour papers. But that's that's the problem, and that's that's the battleground. If newspapers still are a battleground, I, I would I, I would suggest that they aren't as much anymore, but still vitally important. Yeah, I was gonna say how much how much like sort of emphasis do you put on on the on how much you need to be able to have sort of that get through in the mainstream press in the sort of traditional press? I I think that emphasis is definitely reducing uh, as the years go on, but a lot of it is actually about opinion forming within the wider journalistic community and within you know commentary. Uh, it's it's about maintain it's about almost it's it's about creating a narrative of with Keir Starmer at the moment they're trying to create a narrative of competence and about you know ability which I think is the right thing to do but that is forensic yeah you know but that, that, that <laughs> he, he genuinely is that kind of person but that's something we have to be putting into the public consciousness and it's not just through one you know article in a newspaper it's about having them dotted so you could draw a line along uh, where this is going you know where this message is repeated uh, and that is what the newspapers are good for because the reaction on social media is often to an article in that has been shared or you know so th- that is how that narrative can be built irrespective of what the narrative is it has to be done using those tools and i think that's what in political parties and political campaigning that's what the importance of that the press is or of the traditional press you know it, it is the traditional press i would still call it the press um and this is the, this is the case you know across the world and I, I i think there's also a difference and there was a difference within the labor party in that people who read newspapers are generally people over you know, in, in an age bracket that would traditionally vote conservative. Mm. More, there's a disproportionately larger number of people who read newspapers who are 
over the age of 40 than there is under. Um, I don't know that I'd buy a newspaper if I didn't work in politics, but I do only because I work in politics. Um, What do you read? I I read the Daily Mirror uh, and I also read the Financial Times. Uh, I like the Mirror. Um, I like their journalism. They also cover Northern Ireland local stuff better than most of the UK-wide papers. And to be completely honest, it's the only crossword I can finish. Um, (laughs) So there's a bit of that. Um, But also the Financial Times, just because I think it gives... uh, it gives a really good, the, the word forensics coming up again, forensic <laughs> analysis of some of the more of, of the international and geopolitical trends uh, that you just, you, you don't, you, you can get commentary on that in a lot of the other papers, particularly, you know, the, the Times or the Guardian or the Irish Times. I also read the Irish Times, which is another fantastic newspaper. Um, but the, the FT kind of goes into a bit more granular detail. Sometimes you don't want that, but, some, you know, it's, it, it's, you might learn something about, you know, the Caspian Sea and, you know, natural gas. There's something that you're not going to find elsewhere. So it, it, it's more of a horizon broadening thing that I, you know, keep it up to date with with, with, with what's happening. But I, I think that the Labour Party, because it had this influx of new and younger members um, who were the bread and butter uh, of the Corbynism, I think, um, they weren't the people that bought newspapers. They were the people that were on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Uh, so there's you kind of have to have a blended approach to play to both audiences. Um, and I think, uh, I, I don't know, I, I'm not going to say that that wasn't the case under, under the Corbyn leadership, um, but I, I think that it was, there was, I, I actually think there was the right proportion spent time-wise and effort-wise on social media because I, I, and I do think that the Labour Party was ahead of the curve on that. Um, but, you know, it wasn't enough. <laughs> yeah. I mean, something that, that I remember uh, being struck by in, there was a great book written uh, called Betting, Betting the House. Um, Fantastic book. Yeah. And it, it really like was very sort of complimentary of the way in which um, in 2017, the Labour Party used their uh, their social media game, especially things like, like Snapchat and yeah. the sort of ride sharing things that Momentum ran to get people to canvassing and then to the polls. And there was a, there were some really brilliantly creative ways of using the, the sort of the resource that they had in sort of people and time compared to sort of, you know, traditional sort of cash yeah. money. The, the Tories can outspend Labour any day of the week, but they can't out people hire them. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the membership of the Labour Party still is staggeringly big. Um, and it's not just people who pay their membership fees and never do anything. It's an awful lot of people who are genuinely getting involved. And I think Momentum's my nearest marginal app during the 2017 election really changed the game in a lot of seats. Um, I, I remember being, I, I was a, a member of the Stratum CLP, um, which was safe as houses, um, but we were sending people down to Croydon, uh, you know, down to Brentford or Ealing Central and Acton, or I had previously been a member in West Hampstead and Kilburn, which was incredibly marginal. Um, but they were they were getting more people coming down to knock on doors and they hand out their foods and they can actually facilitate. Um, and if you look at, I think, Rupa Hoxie to be in Central and Acton, which was going to be one of the uh, targets uh, for the government. Um, you know, I think I think she's got a 17,000 majority after 2017 from a, you know, a very marginal one. Mm. Um, 
and we can argue the toss and what is that got to do with the record of the public representative? Is it got to do with the messaging of the party overall, uh, or has it got to do with the ground the ground more? I don't know, it's a combination of those, but uh, I, I definitely think it was uh, probably one of the uh, the finest hours of momentum. I, I'm not a momentum member, nor have I ever been, um, but they definitely. It definitely changed a lot of people's minds uh, about how that sort of style of labour politics works because uh, gone are the days of armchair generals and it's now people actually out rolling their sleeves up and get involved and that's great. <laughs> mm. Well, I mean, I, I think it kind of shows you even in the, the most, like, yeah, the first, the first election that really went sort of, aside from maybe the Brexit vote that went like hyper social media that the decide like one of the, the big factors in, in how the vote went ultimately didn't it, it needed what what a half a point more or something yeah. to swing it and it was mad. But it went from like there was like a I think it was a twenty two point swing, like from the from the, the worst polling deficit to where it ended up. Which is madness when you think like we've got all these yeah. incredible, powerful like social technology and, and the thing that gets got it was was arguably just people on the street um which is yeah i mean it 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 sort of gives me a little hope that the future might not be completely you know despairingly controlled by technology yeah you know the the technology is definitely going to play a massive role but it also takes people to be out and creating the stuff for the content for that and that is people still going out and knocking on doors and talking to people and finding out what's happening but, you know, I just, that, that swing from the start of that campaign, none of us saw that coming. But I think that's kind of what gave us that flexibility in what we were doing because we everyone was telling us we were going to get stuffed. So we kind of thought, well, let's just go out and do this and do, do it the way we want to do it and, you know, be a bit ballsy about it. Um, because what, what was the worst? The worst that was going to happen is what people were predicting was going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like that was literally the worst case scenario. <laughs> yeah, you know, conven- the conventional ways of doing things were able to be thrown out the window and we were able to make, enjoy it's not the word, but do it the way, to, I think Jeremy was able to do it the way he wanted to do it because at the end of the day, it was going to be him that was going to be responsible for it, irrespective of the result. Um, no, we didn't win it. And, you know, there's an awful lot of people who were very pleased with, including myself, but we didn't win it and it wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. And that, I think there was a bit of a, there was a bit of a foot off the pedal for a while after that because people were still slapping themselves in the back. Um, although I have to say we were, after that election, we were on an election footing until the 2019 election because the way the numbers were, we had to be continuously prepared. Uh, and, you know, Boris just then sort of pulled the plug and went. It's been an incredible couple of years. Yeah. Also yeah. incredible to note that since uh, 1995, the Tories have only won a majority twice. Um, you know, so in my lifetime, they've only won a majority twice under Cameron and under Boris. So their, their, their victories and their... Uh, their abilities should not be overestimated either. Our time will come, as they say. Mm. That's a wild statistic, actually. They've only won a majority twice in their entire lifetime. Yeah. You know, David Cameron and Boris Johnson are the only 
uh, since, uh, sorry, it's actually since 1992, since the yeah, 92 since election with John Major, so it's even longer than that. It's 20, you know, that's a long time. Now, Labour hasn't won one since 2005, so, uh, you know, it's, it cuts both ways, that. But yeah. um, it, it's when you think about it in that context, because we've had, we've had a couple of years of our politics changing so drastically, so quickly through different world events, um, that, you know, you kind of forget when you take a step back that there's, you know, there's there's longer term trends that uh, in terms of electoral politics that you know will eventually come back to see Labour empire and you know, Tories in the wilderness. You know, it, it's just it is how it will work naturally because people get fed up with the same people. Yeah, well, I mean, that's just sort of human nature. I think that there's there's not very many leaders that I can think of in history that were just revered till the end. I think yeah. the, the only one that I can really think of is um, FDR. That's that's literally yeah. it. Um, and he, no, he, he he won the war, dropped the bomb, and you know, sort of rebuilt the country after the crash. I don't think they were ever going to get pissed with him. But um, no, it's always better to go when you're when they still like you. Yeah, <laughs> it's gonna linger at all. Yeah, but um, so. Why do you think the British media, sorry to go back to that, went went so heavily after after Jeremy Corbyn? I mean, there's like there's a lot of theories as to why he was so vilified, um, and it could be because yeah. he was a, a communist Britain hating, um, you know, uh, yeah, Britain hating communist. But I, I feel like there's probably something more nuanced there. Um, no, uh, well, there, there, there's two things that I that I, that I would often think about that. One is. His worldview was um, so consistent and so, and actually proven to be right in an awful lot of things, you know, as time went on, particularly the international sphere, apartheid, for example. Um, he was so right in those things and he was so convicted, he was such a principled man. And it was so separate to what their worldview was that they just were never going to like him. Um, but also, he was an easy target <laughs> and it sold papers. I, and I think there's an awful lot of it in that. And again, it's about that issue surrounding narrative. They got he got stuck in the narrative that he was this Britain hating communist who you know tried to sell state secrets to the Russians during the Cold War. You know, shit. <laughs> excuse my language, but you know, rubbish like that. That's right. You can swear, man. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, right. uh, but that narrative was created and it was easy and it was easy journalism. No, it was terrible journalism, but it was easy copy uh, and it was easy for people. They, they, they saw him in this frame and it worked. Um, although, uh, you know, and particularly whenever he was getting the criticism around IRA sympathizer stuff, that was, so that very much ended up in my desk. Yeah. Um, and it was interesting during the 2017 election that it just didn't work. I think people can... Why do you think that was? Because they really hammered it. I, I don't know, because I, I, noticed it, I noticed it more working in 2019. I think it didn't work because we tackled it, you know, relatively well. Um, you know, Jeremy came to Queen's University in Belfast on the 20th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement and gave a speech that sold out in... Uh, three minutes for ticket tickets wise. Yeah, I know. I tried to get tickets. <laughs> yeah, and, and he moderated his language in a way that he, he well, he genuinely believes in the Good Friday Agreement and the peace process. You know, uh, he also helped uh, with the negotiations with Republican prisoners and prisoner release. Um, he, he's definitely changed as times went times went on, but uh, 
it just didn't land in 2017 uh, in a way that, I, that we were really worried that it was. It might be that people just weren't thinking about that in the context of that election. Um, it was more about it, that election, I think, was more about the policy platform than about the person. And the 2019 election was more about the person than the policy platform. So that that's probably the, the flip in that. Um, but, you know, the British press are always going to be, it's not even the, the pacifist side of Jeremy because whilst he's anti-war, he's, I don't think he's a complete pacifist in, hmm. uh, you know, kind of a Quaker tradition. Uh, I think he would be in favour of intervention, but it would have to be done in the right way. Um, I, I just think it's very hard if you're from the left. And I, I mean, even, you know, the centre left um, to be pals with a press that's predominantly right wing and conservative supporting, you know, they're just not our tribe. No. I mean, what do you make of the accusations that it was literally like the the establishment terrified of a man going to raise their taxes or close tax havens and, um, you know, basically prevent the, the neoliberal hegemony from continuing? Um. The people that own those newspapers were never going to have problems before than the most expensive accountants in the world and hiding their money. They weren't worried about Jeremy Corbyn grabbing their tax. <laughs> you know, it's uh, pe- people like that were always going to find a way around it. Uh, I would be surprised if I, and I don't genuinely know this if any of them pay tax in the UK at all. Um, so, you know, at that stage, I don't think that's what they were worried about. I think that they, as a, as a political class, uh, I think they were worried that. The old boys club might be over. Mm. You know, the you did me a favor thirty years ago when we were at Oxford, kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think I think there's been an awful lot of people looking for more complicated answers than it was easy. It was an easy sell, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you know, if you're, you, I don't think it mattered who they put up as the yeah. the leader of that of the labor party um if you're if you're sort of pushing anything sort of mildly left wing of tony blair's most right wing um, policies you're going to start and get hostility from a a predominantly sort of free market or pro free market yeah. press um that's yeah i think it's i also think it's less about the economic axis of politics and more about um, the identity side of politics and the point. Do you really think that is the thing, or do you think that's just the the kind of cover for it? No, no, I, I genuinely do because if you look at what the attacks on Corbyn were, they were they weren't as much about plans to nationalise things. You know, they, they but, were about okay. not go, continuing. About, then, sorry. Not, I don't know, not shouting the national anthem loud enough or come turning up to the cenotaph without having a 300 pound coat on you. You know, it, it, it was things like that. And I, and I, I, it's not all about economics and it's not all about money. And there is a genuine part of the British identity that the left has had a problem in embracing for the last number of years that is genuinely important to people. Um, and I really do think that, and I think it's something that needs to be looked at um, by those who are, who are seeking to empire because, you know, 
the, the flag and identity and our armed forces and not our armed forces. I'm using the language of the <laughs> <laughs> Britain. Um, that, that's, that's, that is what the British identity is because it's a manufactured identity. Well, it's not a thing. All identities are manufactured, but it has less of a hinterland as a standalone identity as the Scots, or the Welsh, or the Irish. It, it is, it is a identity formed in the last two, three hundred years. And a lot of that is not represented by an anti-imperialist left, but that's that's that that's the challenge I think is is finding a way of marrying those two together. I think it's possible. Uh, I think you know patriotism doesn't mean that uh, you can't uh, advocate you know cooperation internationally and peace throughout the world and about assisting those nations that are less well off, uh, particularly when it's often the fault of British imperialism that they're in that place anyway. but that's another issue but I mean even 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 mentioning that as an idea is, is seen as sort of Britain hating like like how uh, do you see a way to reconcile those two things because I do understand what you mean there's definitely there's definitely like a sense of 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 sort of being able to have pride in you know where you've come from or um I don't know in in you know what your country has achieved or the the people that 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 have been produced by yeah. the land that you've come from like as as completely like illogical like rationally as it is there's de- in, in in like all of us almost there's just there's a little bit of, yeah. of like sort of home pride and like do you, do you feel do, there's a way to yeah i do and um, again it comes back to what i talked about earlier about building the narrative over a longer period of time it's about trying a lot of it is actually about People have short memories and they don't, they might not remember that following the Second World War, it was Britain that was leading the way and found the United Nations and the international rules based order. Something that since the 1980s, it's kind of stepped away from its leading position in that. Um, and it can be seen by the, from the EU as well. You know, a lot of the countries in the European Union look to Britain for leadership in that body, but we, Britain spurned that rule. Uh, and it, it it's about people understanding their own history as well. And that's kind of very guardian readery comment. Oh, we all need to have better education about British <laughs> history. And I, I, I know I sound like one of these people now, but I, I do think that there needs to be uh, an understanding of the positive role that Britain has played internationally, um, as well as the negative role. Uh, you know, the, you have to, you have to understand both in order to get you know the right view of the history. But, Britain, you know, if you look at some of the achievements following the Second World War in the international stage, in establishing what we've got today is the protections, you know, around the world. Uh, that's that's really important, and that I think is something that people uh, living in England, Scotland, and Wales should be incredibly proud of. Um, but it's something that has to be. It's not. It, it, it's it's not an event. It's something that has to be nurtured and continued, and something that has to be. You have to play an active role in it, and, and I think that's a way of no, it's all of marrying those two ideas together. But at the end of the day, I I'm not of a British identity, so it's a bit difficult for me to try and tell them how to express that identity and how to show patriotism towards it. Because in the same way that I would be more than uh, upset if someone from, you know, the West Midlands was trying to tell me how to express my Irish identity, which they've tried to do before, but, you know, 
in a lot of ways, it's not a problem for me to solve. No, <laughs> it's a problem. It's it needs to be those who embrace that identity have to define themselves how they best do that. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely a, a difficult problem to to sort of get your head around. Um, <laughs> so, one of the things that I was just utterly baffled by through the four or five years of of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership was just the repeated anti-Semitism um, problem, accusations, uh, however you want to describe it. Yeah. And I read and read and read and could not for the life of me figure out where the genuine like concerns began mm-hmm. and where the other horse shit started. Like, yeah. <laughs> because, I mean, like the, 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 the coverage of it especially by by the the press that you know we already talked about was just constant and daily and to the point yeah. where you could you could be led to believe that 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 like there was literally fucking nazis going about in the labor party like calling for for jewish people to be locked up like that's yeah. that's the, the the crazy levels of like accusations it got to but there was yeah, obviously was, some truth in in the fact yeah, that there were some people. So, so yeah, what you was know. your impression from from inside the party of as to what was going on? Thankfully, I had very little to do with this because it was internal party management. But obviously, you you get a better understanding of it from the inside. I always used to get asked this by people from other political parties or by you know people you know within politics, but not within the labor movement. And some people go. But you know, there isn't there aren't really anti Semites in the Labour Party. And there were and there are. Um and I think it we it, it was very easy for people to try and deny that there was a problem. There definitely was. Um as a proportion of the party, it's minuscule, but that doesn't excuse it. Uh one anti Semite in the Labour Party is one anti Semite too many. And I, I think the party I think the the system that was in place posed a problem uh, in that it kind of got rid of uh, decisive action. You had an awful lot of, you know, inquiries and, you know, uh, panels that would look into things that then had to give X number of months of a right of reply, you know, to the person being investigated or to the person making the accusation. So there was an awful lot of legalistic reasons why it was slowed down. You also have the, the the fact that a lot of people, once they had these anti-Semitism um, claims brought against them, and you know, I'm not going to uh, suggest if they're true or not, but they're, the fact that they a lot of them then left the Labour Party voluntarily, which therefore stopped the investigation, uh, look, made it look as though there were fewer things being resolved, uh, and in a way, they weren't resolved because you know these people left uh, and. You know, there, there was no closure to that process. I, I think the party's process is really far too slow. Uh, and I, I, I don't know how much it was deliberate attempts to cover things up. I, I genuinely don't think that. That was not my feeling of how, how it happened. But, I'm, you know, again, I wasn't in the middle of this, so, I'm, you know, I'm happy to be contradicted on it. Um, I, I think, you know, some of the stuff Keir Starmer's done, he's be, he has been more decisive. Um, whether that's right or wrong, or follows you know the due process argument is is a different is a different question. Um, but I think it was a definite problem for uh, you know the Labour Party uh, and one that I think was more damaging than anything else. 
Um, uh, and that's that. That's what that is the unfortunate problem with a party that expands its membership as rapidly as the Labour Party did. Uh, you know, I think at the, the height, uh, there were six hundred thousand members. It was Europe's uh, largest political party, largest political party uh, in terms of membership. And there were people who have been knocking around left wing circles, who have been in little rooms and meetings with other people were with very few people in them and they've been talking about the imperialist conspiracies and people who get involved in politics and political parties i i think and i include myself this by and large have a, have a, have a wee bit of a problem with them you know who, who they ever want to get involved with this kind of stuff mm. but then you do, you do also inevitably track those people who are you know tinfoil hat conspiracy theorists and sometimes that overlaps with the far left and that over in that Venn diagram, there's also anti anti-Semitism, which is, you know, people look at it Israel and, you know, Jewish people as controlling the world order. And, you know, you just think, do you ever, you know, you're talking shit, like, you know, and it is, it is just, it's an otherness. And, you know, othering people is something that isn't unique to the far right. It is also there uh, throughout the political spectrum. Um, and it just it just wasn't handled effectively. Hmm. I mean, yeah, it's it's, not, it's nice to, to to actually get some some clarification on 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 that from from yourself. Um, one of the things I did find a, a touch weird was the the sort of like Jer- Jeremy Corbyn as an anti semite. That was that was the, I think is correct me if I'm wrong. I believe that that Seamus Milne and John Lansman are both Jewish or of Jewish heritage. Uh, I- I, I know that John Lansman is Jewish. I'm not entirely sure about Seamus, actually. Um, or it's it's Seamus, or it's some someone else who was who was like a lead advisor to Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. And I, I was just like, I, really, he would he, like an anti-Semite would work with with those people. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, it, it's well, it's, it's it's kind of the IRA argument as well. I used to say to people, I wouldn't work for Jeremy Corbyn if I thought he was an IRA sympathizer, mm. and there were Jews that worked with Jeremy Corbyn who wouldn't have worked if they thought he was an anti-Semite. Yeah, and he's not an anti-Semite. Was he effective enough at driving out anti-Semitism within the Labour Party? No, but he was not an anti-Semite, nor is he an anti-Semite. Um, but the, there again, it comes back to the narrative painting. It was because of the lack of decisive action on those cases where there were was anti-Semitism. When you had MPs like Luciana Berger uh, feeling they had to leave the party because of it, and that sends a genuine symbol like, to the, the public and. The engagement with the Jewish community, who who are the bread, who were the bread and butter the labour movement, you know, it, it's it just wasn't right. It wasn't done right. You know, going and spending your time with left wing Jewish groups is again kind of the what I was saying about going and speaking to you know the Canary blog. Fine, but you're talking to yourself there. You need to go and talk to the people that disagree with you and talk to the people that have issues in order to convince them and to give them confidence that what we're doing is right. And that could have been, from my perspective, that could have been done better. I'm not going to sit here and criticize old former colleagues, you know, intensely. Mm. Um, but from my reading of it, and again, happy to be corrected, but my reading was that it could have been done better. Well, I don't think anyone could disagree with that um, specifically. Um, so then, so moving on to uh, sort of in 2017, and then there was there was the the panorama episode that came out um, regarding 
just the this the two struggling factions within the Labour Party and and the the picture that was painted was very much especially from some of the people from within Momentum and on the left of the party was that there was like an active like plot to sabotage Jeremy Corbyn's potential to get into power to be leader of the Labour Party and to implement the, the his his sort of vision or the Corbynism um however you want to define it that they were actively attempting to prevent him from becoming you know prime minister because they were scared of what he would do because it was too radical or you know for whatever reason you you want to believe they were doing that like again what was what was your impression from from within the party uh i was definitely frustrated by some of the you know colleagues in the parliamentary labor party do i think there was some sort of you know, organized conspiracy. With conspiracies, I often think it's more coincidence than design. Uh, and I don't give people the credit sometimes of being <laughs> as Machiavellian as people might think, <laughs> considering that I've met them. Um, no, listen, there were people who obviously weren't happy with the leadership of Jeremy. Um, that's to be expected. The Labour Party's broad church. Did they, would they rather have had to- the Tories in power than Jeremy? I don't think so. Um, but I've often found, I, I've, watching things as they are now with, you know, Keir Starmer in charge and the left of the party that would have been the, the core of the Corbyn Shadow Cabinet, they're called the Socialist Campaign Group, complained an awful lot about how they were, there was a small group within the PLP undermining the leadership. And I'm just, I'm getting the, the impression that they might be doing the same thing <laughs> or some of them may be doing exactly what they criticised <laughs> the right wing they do uh, but you know it was ever thus uh, it's it's just how the, the political parties operate uh, yeah there, there was there were definitely you know degrees of uh, hostility towards the leader uh, there were people who were just never going to reconcile themselves with it um, and I think those some of those left the party and that was if i'm honest i'd rather they did that than you know instead of rolling their sleeves up within the party and trying to get things done um you know jeremy was at the end of the day democratically elected twice uh as leader of the Labour party um you know under rules that he did not design um you know to to try and say that he was an illegitimate leader of the party is completely and utterly bullshit um, you may not like it, but I think there were an awful lot of great people under the Corbyn leadership who weren't from, you know, his traditional political camp who rolled their sleeves up and they tried to do the job. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that's what you do and that's what you should do. Uh, and you can look at the last shadow cabinet. You know, you have people like Barry Gardner, mm-hmm. uh, people like John Healy, you know, Andrew Quinn, who weren't who weren't Corbynistas, but they were just they were just good Labour Party people. Um, when they were asked to serve, they took they, they did it and they did it well. Um, and that's what people should have done instead of sniping from the sidelines. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The, the, to be honest, it was it was almost a relief um, for me watching it that when the when the the sort of what was it seven or eight of them eventually decided they would yeah. up and and leave and go for for Change UK, which was uh, clearly an incredibly successful um, thing for their well, career, a positive thing Ch- for Ch- their Ch- career. Was my name in the Parliament at the time? Mm. Uh, who, uh, really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, I he, yeah. I heard rumours 
that he was getting paid, um, that there was at least an advisor or two being paid for him by the Liberal Democrats while he was still working for the Labour, while he was still a Labour Party MP. Really? Jeez. Just a rumour, uh, but, you know, that's 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 what I heard. Well, I don't know. I know that the Liberal Democrats are flush with cash, so... Mm. Well, that's a fair point. <laughs> Um, but then if you're to believe but, that there's a big overarching anti, anti-Corbynista conspiracy, then there should be plenty of money flowing around to, to pay well, for it. Exactly. <laughs> I, I don't know how organized the anti, anti-Corbyn, uh, the, the shadow shadow cabinet is, I think, someone referred to them as. Um, That's great. Yeah. And you knew who the people were. Like, uh, you know, they, 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 God knows they might have been more organized than the shadow cabinet, yeah. but... Uh, they, uh, yeah, there were those people there, and you know they're they're good people. They're still they're they're still important in the Labour Party, and some of them are now on the front bench. And do you know what? That's just what you do within a political party. Is it right? Probably not. Is it the reality? Yes, it is. Yeah, I mean, like one of the people who's maybe not traditionally a Corbynista who who did very well out of sort of sitting down and rolling up his sleeves is um, you know their current leader, uh, Keir Starmer. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's, 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 you know, maybe something to be said for, you know, buckling down and, and sort of getting on with and doing, doing the hard work. Yeah. Keir definitely did that. Mm-hmm. And within the shadow cabinet, you have to also remember that Jeremy needed Keir as well. Mm-hmm. If Keir had walked, um, which there are occasions in which I'm surprised they have the, the fortitude not to, <laughs> not to tell him you can fuck themselves <laughs> uh, or any of the Brexit stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I don't. You know, I, I may not have agreed with the, the Labour Party front bench's position of Brexit at all at all times. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I'm not, not sorry to say that. Uh, but, you know, Keir stayed there. And if he had went, it would have caused serious problems for Jeremy. He was important to the leadership because of the, you know, the importance of Brexit as an issue. And he knew it in a way and was able to explain it and dissect the government in a way that no one else, I think, within that shadow cabinet possibly could have. Um and you know, I was always interested when the people talk about you know the, the influx of membership under Jeremy, how they're you know very left wing, but they're also very pro European, uh, which we saw at some of our party conferences where you know there was overwhelming support for second referendums and stuff like that. Mm. Um, it was that's why when Keir uh, announced he was going to be leader, he kind of won it at the conference before. By the way, he dealt with those delegates who were overwhelmingly pro-Jeremy, but also pro-European. And it just shows you that people's politics aren't just defined by one thing, that when it came down to that election for leader, where there was a continuity Corbyn candidate, the, the, the membership cut in a different way, and it was over the issue of Brexit and competence, I suppose. But uh, it's, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, Keir was definitely needed. But that, that, can, that portrays the point. You know, th- there was a need for people of talent to step up. Um, and some people stepped up, stepped in when they were to fill the breaches in the wall whenever there was mass resignations in the shadow cabinet. And they've done very well out of it as well. You know, Angela Rayner springs to mind, mm-hmm. who has done a fantastic job as shadow education secretary uh, and is a fantastic deputy leader who has a great story to tell uh, and I think can uh, speak to a section of the society of, of Britain that Keir might otherwise not be able to. Mm. 
I mean, one of the things that the interesting things about about the sort of pro-European aspect of of the the younger members of the Labour Party, especially the, the influx of momentum people sort of post 2015, is the the fact that they were willing to go with Jeremy Corbyn because of the rest yeah. of his platform on Brexit, even though I think many of many of them, and myself included, were aware that he's just probably not very pro-Europe at all. Um, I just for for an, an, and it seems that might be a different. Yeah, <laughs> but like, do, so do you think that without Brexit as an as the the sort of defining issue of our generation, un, unfortunately, do you think that he would have been prime minister? Do you think that would without that that he would have um sort of come? No, no. Um, without Brexit, the Tory party wouldn't have been as unstable as it had been. Um, and their internal divisions wouldn't have been highlighted as much. Okay. I think without Brexit, Cameron wouldn't have resigned. We wouldn't have had May as Prime Minister, which increased the chances of that 2017 election. I, I think it's hard to tell, but I think I mean, Brexit like is to realize all of politics, not just the Labour Party. Yeah. I mean, like if you if you if you consider okay, so say the 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 referendum hadn't gone ahead, perhaps, or yes. um, if you'd say maybe they'd even lost it and, and you know, we'd voted to remain. Do you think then in, in four four years' time, then we might have had a, a Cameron Corbyn sort of face-off that he, he could have had a chance at if he'd put forward the same sort of broadly popular platform? Or or do you think that, that the only reason that he was able to get that platform in that context was because of, of you know, sort of Theresa May's utter collapse as a sort of any sort of yeah i'd like to think that that positive and progressive platform you know that was in transforming the economy and society would have been as popular it just was an easier sell when you were up against someone as bad as theresa may who was looking to introduce a dementia tax mm. um which by the way I think was over egged. Yeah, I think I think when when it was I don't know how many times I've read stuff about it. And every time I read something on it, I kinda get it. And I kinda think maybe if yeah. you'd explained this better, it yeah. might have been better understood. But they just just didn't. They 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 just No, yeah. they, they didn't. In fairness, then they thought they were gonna walk that election so that they could do the more controversial things surrounding you know, longer term care of people and there does need to be a radical change in how that's funded and how it's costed uh, and I, I get that what they were trying to do they thought we could afford to lose votes over this mm. but it needs to be done and we need to have it in a manifesto so it can be delivered through the House of Commons and the House of Lords they just read it wrong um, and they read I think Theresa May's ability to connect with people in the country wrong no, so I, I think without Brexit it it probably would have been an easier sell, but I think we would have been up against a far better Tory party in that you, know, you could have had Cameron, who was a far better salesman than Theresa May ever was. Yeah. No, definitely. And yeah, the sort of Cameron-Osborne duo was, was quite a quite a powerful one even you know if you don't if you don't really believe in anything that they're saying they were definitely yeah they had, an, they, they had that air of sort of we know what we're doing um you know you can trust us we're very competent we went to eaton we know what we're doing well, that, that is often the case with the stories that there is a board to rule uh, and uh, they, they feel that they, they have a confidence that i think uh 
people from less advantaged backgrounds do not have that you know why why wouldn't i be prime minister of course i can do that (laughs) i mean i don't think boris could have succeeded as a if he wasn't a conservative no (laughs) boris has failed upwards and impressively so yeah, I mean, I wish I could. I wish I could get away with lying and just get, keep getting, just just lie, sacked few few months later, much better job. That would be a great little cycle, wouldn't it? Yeah, <laughs> imagine, imagine being rewarded with the highest political office in the land. Yeah. I mean, you know what the worst bit is? He's funny. He's genuinely, genuinely, I think, quite charismatic and amusing. And if he wasn't prime minister, I would quite enjoy him. You see, if he was just some like like Reese Mogg esque backbencher, I could handle him. I could just find him hilarious yeah. and amusing. It's the fact that he's fucking prime minister. <laughs> yeah, people used to think Russell Brand was funny until he got involved in politics, and you know yeah. that ended yeah, well. well. I mean, that then. Yeah, I mean, Russell Brand started saying like sort of exploring a lot of really wild ideas. Um, for probably for the betterment of himself um and you know to to anyone who who listened because he was um uh, he was really going all over the political spectrum in every kind of idea way possible so which i have to respect um you know at least he's sort of thinking about things but then everyone's like oh well you know stick to comedy <laughs> maybe that would have been bo- yeah maybe boris should have stuck to hosting have i got news for you uh, if only yeah so um do you think that Corbyn, McDonnell, and and Momentum sort of succeeded in uh, the, the one of their big things was to they hoped to democratize the Labour Party and give the members a lot more power in um, electing the leader and and sort of setting the policy. Um, do you think that they succeeded, or has that kind of all been very quickly sort of rolled back? No, it's very difficult to roll these things back because they would have to be decided at full conference. Uh, and obviously we don't have now. We should actually be on the last day of the Labour Party conference in 2020 but because of COVID, it's not happened. Um, I think they have the, the democratisation of the, uh, electing the leader was actually done before Corbyn. Uh, it was the democratisation of the party's structures locally and right up to the National Executive Committee. I think the National Executive Committee has been changed enough um, in that there is no more representation of the grassroots of the party. And that was an attempt to try and shore up uh, the left's support on what is an incredibly important body. If you remember, this has got all the trade union representation on it. You've got the PLP represented on it. You've got, you know, the grassroots represented on it. And it's you've also got, you know, ex-officio members of the leader, the deputy leader. Uh, and I think there's two representatives from the shadow cabinet as well. This is the body that decides what the party does and how it does it. It approves the manifesto line by line uh, in the Clause 5 meeting. Uh, it's really important. And by including a better, a larger platform for the membership, uh, it did mean that as long as that membership remains to be uh, or of the left and organised, there will be uh, decent representation there. I, I think... It's, they didn't. I don't think they needed to change how the party at a local level ran because it kind of works on a, if you get your numbers there, you'll get your people onto the executive. And as long as there is a, you know, pro-carbon or pro-carbon policy style, uh, socialist campaign group style, organized left at a local level, then, you know, they're, they're going to have a role to play. Uh, and it's an important role because, you know, that's a radical tradition within the Labour Party that's important. As a, you know, the Labour Party, like so many, well, particularly in Britain, it's different in continental Europe. You know, it's 
big church parties and you, you can have an eclectic uh, cherry picking of ideas and policies from within them to create something that can actually be far more transform, transformative. Um, I don't know that there was a huge, there was an attempt to change the selection process of members of parliament mm-hmm. or the more important, the deselection. Yeah. I've always been in two minds about this because I feel that members of parliament should, uh, before every election, be reselected by their party, okay. uh, by their local party. Um, do I think that mid-term you should be able to <clears throat> do a, like an internal Labour Party recall of a member of parliament? No, I do not. Okay. Um, but I do think it's it's right that people you know engage with their local party and engage within the structures there. Uh, instead of being some sort of absentee MP. Um, you know, my, my background before the Labour Party was in the SDLP here in Northern Ireland, and that's how it works with that. You know, it's it's it's, it's also how it works with the Tories, that you, know, you have to get re-ratified as a candidate. Um, the way that the, the party went about doing it, though, it was, I think it was rightly seen by an awful lot of people um, not of the, not uh, in favour with the leadership that they were trying to be ousted and elbowed out, and they were going to have to. Uh, he also had an awful lot of members of parliament who were spending so much time trying to ensure that they got reselected, that they weren't that they were taking their eye off actually campaigning, or you know, it's an intense process. So I, I, I am in, I have a two minds about it because I do think that. It's fair that if you're going to be standing under the Labour badge, that those who are the Labour Party within your constituency get to decide if you do that or not. Um, because an MP isn't, you know, the, it isn't the constituency at a, at a local level. It's those that go out in the poor arena, knock on doors, and you know, councillors that are you know up at all hours, sort of helping people out. Uh, so there has to be a bit of a give and take, but. Uh, I, I I don't think anything that's been done is irreversible. Okay. Well, um, so final question for you. Um, where does it seem to you like uh, Keir Starmer is taking the Labour Party? Do you think they're going to drift sort of Blair direction, sort of new Labour um, policy-wise or sort of, you know, go, uh, their sort of style of, of governing the party as such? Or do you think it's going to sort of stay very much in, ter- in the way that you know, Jeremy, well, well, Jeremy Corbyn had the party in sort of maybe a little further left than some people would like. Yeah. Um, I, I, I honestly think that, uh, you know, from knowing the current leadership, knowing those within the shadow cabinet, that a lot of the policies, you know, in the last two manifestos will probably remain, uh, particularly those around the Green New Deal uh, and, you know, uh, National Education Service, which still has a lot of flesh and act to be done, uh, and rebalancing the regional economy, uh, whether that's, you know, how that's done and the specifics of that may, may differ. Uh, and, you know, the last Labour manifestos were proposing regional investment banks as a, as a way of, you know, uh, having a bit more regional balance and if I move some of the government departments outside of London. Um, I, I think, I think by a large lot that'll stay. I, I think the, um, the way that Keir's, I, I think Keir's probably going to take the party. I, I think the comparison with Blair is always quite funny because uh, Blair 
every leader of the Labour Party has to be seen as a product of the time in which they operate. Mm. Uh, and I would compare someone to Blair when he was, you know, uh, that was the 90s. Yeah. I, I mean, as much as- my, my comparison to Blair in, in my mind is more about um, his style of, of, of sort of running the party. So Tony Blair was very much, it was the Tony Blair show. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, yeah. I don't feel like Keir Starmer has quite got the same ego. No. It's, it's not going to be the same sort of uh, kitchen cabinet control that there was with Blair. Um, I, I just I, I don't think he, that can be done anymore. Uh, I, I think with the nature of politics and uh, in a more digital era, it's hard to have a, 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 an iron grip on everything. But I, I, I do think that there's going to be um, a group around here, Starmer, made up of members of the shadow cabinet that will be a part of you know setting the direction. And I think particularly of the likes of Lisa Andy, Annalisa Dodds, and Nick Thomas Simmons, who. The latter two are were they were given massive promotions by Keir Starmer um, because and, and I think well deserved. I think uh, two of the nicest and two of the most well thought through um, politicians within the Labour movement who really impressed under Corbyn. Um, you know, Nick Thomas Simmons is the Shadow Attorney General or sorry, the Shadow Solicitor General. But obviously he was shadowing Jeffrey Cox because Baroness Charter Valley was in the Lords. Um, that's the group around him. And that's a group that I think will be quite loyal to him um, because of the patronage he's shown. But also there's there's some real depth of thought there. Um, and I get actually, uh, Annalisa Dodds is a... Is really quite a of the of the people that could have become shadow chancellor. She is one of the most radical of them, okay. um, and I think that will be borne out in uh, what the, the policy is. Um, so I, I think it'll be it, it won't be centralised control in the way that it may have been in the past, but it also won't be as gra- as bottom up as it happened under Corbyn. But what pe- a lot of people seem to think is that. Under Jeremy, there wasn't some sort of central control coming from his office. There definitely was. Yeah. <laughs> you know, democracy, party democracy is great until you're running a party. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I remember talking to, um, oh my goodness, what was his name? Richard Barbrook about uh, like his their their plans to to like make policy totally democratized and and like using apps to and like different questionnaire things to filter the entire membership's opinion on everything into a manifesto. Um, and I was mind blown that that was actually a possibility, and sort of skeptical that it was really going to happen, and it sort of didn't. Um. <laughs> no, that, you know, you know, a camel is just a horse designed by committee. You know, you, you end up if you try and do that policy with such a large membership. You can do it if you have a smaller membership, if you're a smaller party. But if you've got such a mass membership, things just get watered down so much that the policy becomes pointless and too nuanced. Mm. Nuance is great, but it's terrible when you're trying to trying to sell something to the public. Um, and clear, decisive policies that people can understand aren't going to get designed by a membership of half a million people. No. Well, um, that is, um, yeah, a good note to leave it on. Uh, so, yeah, thanks thanks very much, man. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, it's been, it's been, great, it's been great to chat after so with the years. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> thanks so much for listening. 
If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. Until next time, thanks for listening.